Um, if you've got one of the programs in your hand, you'll see that um, I wanted to uh, talk about A Tale of Three Sons. And I only realized, well, I didn't only just realize this, obviously, but I just realized I've got three sons. So I want to say at the outset that the three sons that I've listed there, the selfish son, the sulking son, and the spectacular son, I don't want you to spend the next 20 minutes guessing which one is which. I only realized that today. The other irony here is that I've got two daughters, and Beth's been the one being baptized today, and here I'm doing a talk on the tale of three sons, so I'm sorry, Beth, um, about that as well. Um, Luke uh, has been banging on at me this week, make sure your talk is short. And I think he's organized snipers to be around the balcony. So if I go over time, I'm like... Um, I think the three most important questions you can ask in life are these. Who is God? Who am I? And how do I relate to him? Who is God? Who am I? And how do I relate to him? Three very important questions. I had a really interesting and stimulating conversation with someone about a couple of weeks ago. We talked about religion and politics. We talked a little bit about the state of our country. And at the end, the other person that I was speaking to said... I thought very poignantly and very helpfully, wouldn't it be great if people who disagreed with each other could try and understand each other's point of view and just get along? What the other person was saying was, I wish we could get rid of people who are arrogant and superior and who think they know better than everybody else if we could just understand each other a little bit better and get along, wouldn't that be better for, for the world? I, I think I went to sleep thinking about that comment, like you do. Um, why is there so much intolerance? And why is it that the people who claim to be the most tolerant are often the most intolerant of people that they don't think are tolerant? Why are there so many angry groups who think that they're right and somehow that everyone else is wrong? And, and why, I went to sleep thinking about this, why is it also that if we're honest, none of us think that we're wrong? We always think it's the others, don't we? It's never me or us or the group that I belong to. It's always the other lot over there. The very next day, after going to sleep thinking about this stimulating conversation, the very next day, I don't know why, but I just happened to read the verses in the Bible that Angela just read to us. We didn't read the whole chapter. If you're still there, I just happened to read, read these words at the beginning of Luke chapter 15. And the, because of the conversation I'd had the night before, these words kind of leapt off the page and came alive in a new way a little bit because I saw the exact same thing that we'd been talking about the night before. 
This is what it says. Luke records. Now, the tax collectors, now, they, they're not a good group. If that was, if this was a pantomime, we'd all go, boo, tax collectors are not good. In this culture, at least, if you're a tax collector, no, I'm very, I'm sorry about that. But in this culture, they weren't considered to be good. The tax collectors and sinners were all gathering round to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were muttering and stuttering and nattering and grumbling. This man welcomes sinners. He even eats with them. Does he not know who they are? Does he not know where they've been? More than that, there's a little implication. Does he not know who we are? How hard we've tried to be good. How little this group have tried to be good. This Jesus is mad. This is a disgrace. Do you get, do you see the connection with the conversation I've been having? Here's a group who are very religious, thinking that the riffraff over here are scumbags and beyond the pale. And Jesus is eating with these, and these people are very offended. What is he doing? Jesus tells them a story he made up. Jesus was a great storyteller. He actually tells them three stories. And we're going to kind of skip over the first two. You can read them at home. But we're going to jump to the third story that Jesus uh, told. Angela read to us, the par- it's, it's known as the parable of the prodigal son. You may have heard of it. What you might not know is that in the story of the prodigal son, there are two sons. And I want us to have a look just very, very briefly so I don't get shot by snipers. Two of them. First of all, the selfish son. I'm gonna, I'm gonna illustrate this visually. Don't go away. Here's the first one. Let me just clip this on. Oh no, this is taking some of the time. I'm gonna put this up here. I wasn't sure if I'd drawn, I wasn't sure if I'd drawn it big enough. The selfish son. This is not one of my kids, okay? The selfish son. This son, we're told by Luke, made up story. We're told by Luke that the younger son went to his dear old dad and basically said to his dad, I wish you were dead. Can I have my inheritance now? I don't want to wait until you pop your clogs. He didn't love his dad. He wanted his dad's stuff, but he didn't want any kind of relationship with his dad. What kind of son goes to his dad and effectively says, Dad, I wish you'd hurry up and die? so I can have my share. In fact, give it to me now. 
It's boring here. I feel so restricted. I feel like I need to get away and see the world. I want to expand my horizons and leave this joke of a place with you bunch of losers. Give me my share now. You may know the story. He takes his money. I've got a picture in mind of Dick Whittington with his little stick over his shoulder and the bag on the end. And he goes to London Town. Oh, no, not London Town, but he heads off with his father's cash. And he lives the high life. He spends it all. He wastes it all. It says here, Luke uses the word squandered. He squandered his wealth in wild living. until there was none of it left. Luke then says, as as Jesus is telling this story, that a famine hits the whole country. That's bad timing, that, isn't it? He's lived the high life, his money's gone, and then a famine comes. And this poor younger son ends up working on a pig farm. Jesus here says that he was so hungry, he longed to eat the pods that the pigs were eating. But no one gave him anything. It's a dog-eat-dog world, isn't it? He had lots of friends when he had money, but he's got nothing left. No one takes pity on him. He has nothing. Jesus says he came to his senses, and he decides to go home, and he prepares a little speech in his mind of what he's going to say to his dad when he gets home. And he and it's very interesting. He knows he deserves nothing, really. And in, in his speech, he, he, he kind of resolves in his heart to say to his dad, I, I, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. I don't deserve your love, but maybe I can earn some wages. Maybe he thought his dad was a better boss than the pig farmer was. And so he goes home. The father's response is incredible and poignant. The father, from a, it says in, in, in the Bible here, the father from a long way away saw him coming. You get the sense that the dad has been stood at the gate almost every day, hoping and willing his son to come home. And with his binoculars or telescope or whatever, he says, is that him? And he sees him on the horizon coming, and he doesn't wait for him to come to the gate. He sets off running. He runs down the road. And his son sees the dad coming. He's got his speech prepared. Dad, I'm not worthy. And his dad throws his arms. He stinks of big food. His dad throws his arms around him and smothers him. He only gets through half the speech he prepared. And the father says, Son, all that matters is that you've come home. Someone find the best cow, kill it and barbecue it. Someone get a coat, someone get a ring, find him some shoes. The son who was dead is alive again. The son who I thought was lost has been found If the story ended there, it would be a great story. It would be a tale of one son 
and we'd be quick so the snipers wouldn't get me. But that, that, wouldn't that be a great story? But there's another son. And I've got another book here. £2.67 in old bits. Sulking son. The selfish son. The sulking son. This son's working in the field. And he hears the music. And he asks another of his father's servants, what's going on? Is it X Factor started again or something? What's where, Where's the music coming from? And the servant says, your long lost brother has come home in verse 28 it says that this older brother became angry and he refused to go in to the party he's furious The dad goes out and tries to persuade him. But look at what the older son says. Sorry, my now I'm in my 40s. My eyes don't work as well. The, The older son says, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you. All these years I've been slaving for you. You never throw a party for me. Hey, what does it all mean? And what's it got to do with that conversation I had? Seems pretty obvious, I think. It should seem pretty obvious to us that these two sons represent two groups. One son rebelled and made a right mess of things. The other son didn't rebel at all. He kept all the rules. He was squeaky clean, this one. But I want you to get two things here. Neither of these boys love their dad. Do you get that? One of them thought the dad was a joke and couldn't run away fast enough. But the other thought the dad was a slave driver. And he did his duty, and both of them are seething against their dad in their hearts. Both of them are empty buckets. Different behavior, but the same root. In this story, Rebellion and religion are actually the same thing. The root of it is that neither of them love their dad. Some, some people believe that keeping the rules is the answer to this. But if there's no love in the heart, they're both as bad as one another. Do you see that? It's an incredible story. 
The second thing I want you to get is that they're both wrong. Neither of them love their dad, and they're both wrong because the father is amazing. Here's what I want you to get. I've said a couple of times that this building's a listed building. Did you know it's a listed building? Imagine, don't tell anyone I ever said this. Imagine if we could drive a crane in here and up onto this platform and pick up this tank and lift it. You, you imagine we could lift it high up in the air, right in the middle here between the balcony, right up in the air, and then slowly tip it out to fill these buckets. Oh, that would be so cool, wouldn't it? I'd get in a lot of trouble, though. So we're just going to have to imagine it. We're not going to do it. Imagine we could tip this tank into these buckets. That is what the love of this father is really like. It is extravagant and generous and shocking. And the reason that both these sons need it is because they are empty buckets. What the selfish or rebellious son needs to know is that the father loves him. He finds that out, doesn't he? But what the sulking, religious son needs to know is that the father loves him. Neither of them can earn it. Why does Jesus tell this story? I hope it's obvious to you that the main reason Jesus tells this story is because it's a massive poke in the eye to the arrogant, superior, self-righteous attitude of those religious leaders who were muttering and nattering about Jesus associating with undesirables. What they're thinking is, we deserve it. They obviously don't. There's more going on here, though, because the point Jesus makes in this chapter is that he himself is on a rescue mission. From God's perspective, from God's perspective, actually, we all are like empty buckets. We've fallen for the lie that God, the Almighty Father, doesn't care. And because we think He doesn't love us, we rebel and we turn to religion, but in our hearts we're seething against Him. Some of us will fill our lives with stuff that we hope will satisfy us, and some of us will fill our lives with religion, but the emptiness doesn't go away because our buckets are empty because we don't know that this Father loves us extravagantly. If Jesus is right here, and I think he is, just let you into a little secret, there is a Father who does love us, 
And if Jesus is right here, we are all guilty of treating him terribly. We're not as good as we think we are. And yet there is a father who wants to lavish his kindness on us like a waterfall. How does he do it? On your programs, you've noticed already that I've said a tale of two, uh, three sons. Two sons? Three, I wrote this talk. Three sons. That's right. Selfish son. The sulking son. There is a third. Spectacular son. When I was a kid, I grew up in the northwest. We used to go to the Lake District a lot Um, so imagine with me if you will a massive beautiful lake in the Lake District beautiful clear pure water and then imagine a little river flowing out of the bottom of the lake into another lake so that the second lake is filled with all the pure clear goodness of the first lake Here's a verse in the Bible. I was just drawn to this. Um, For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form and you have been given fullness in Christ. That phrase, in Christ, has cropped up a lot today. For in Christ, those lakes... When Christ comes into the world, he is coming into the world with all of that beautiful, clear lake flowing into him. Christ is the almighty, eternal, loving Father shown to the world in human skin. This spectacular son comes from the ultimate Father with all of that extravagant love to search and to seek for people whose buckets are empty. He wasn't selfish and he never sulked. He lived the perfect life and he died on a cross. The death that we actually all deserve because we haven't loved the Father as we ought. And he comes so that our empty buckets can be filled. Broken people like you and me can be in Christ and know all of his fullness. At the start, I asked three questions. Who am I? Who is God? And how do I relate to him? Who am I? Well, I'm not the person I should be. Who is God? He is the Heavenly Father who pours out His love. And I can see it most when I sense that He sent His Son Jesus to die. What an amazing gift. And how can I relate to this God? Whether we've been religious or rebellious, 
this good father calls me and you to believe in his spectacular son. To believe in his unconquerable love. And to stop thinking that he's either a joke or a slave driver and start loving him back. That's the good news of the Christian message. All of these guys who've been baptized today have done that. So can you. And I want to call you. It's my job. I want to call you to do exactly that today. Let's pray, shall we?